Job's comforters ask Job, is prayer a profitable thing? And uh, it is profitable. So I'm going to encourage all of you to gather back Thursday night, November the 21st. Church-wide prayer. And I'm going to ask you to come open-minded and come prepared to touch the, the hem of his garment. And uh, But before I go to my Bible study, I'd like to talk to you for a few minutes. Um, I'm planning, and uh, next next Wednesday night we'll not have church due to Thanksgiving. That is next Wednesday is the following following Wednesday. I, for whatever reason, I've got it in my head that Thanksgiving's next Wednesday, but the following Wednesday we'll not have service. We will have church, but um, I'd like for all of you to really help me pray. Uh, I've felt. I've, I've taught and taught and taught for years and years here at Grace that what we do with God is a relationship. It's not an experience. It's not just something you engage in your church, but it's a relationship. And uh, those of you that, that can remember, more often than not, I relate our relationship with God to husband and wife. There's things we do in lifestyle and what have you that, that I relate that to. Well, yesterday I was blessed to sit in a session and um, uh, I listened to a minister speak, this brother Mark Marley from California, pastors of church in San Francisco area. And I listened to him talk for a long time. He, he, he must have spoke about an hour and was speaking yesterday in much the same way that I am, spoke for almost an hour, just opened his Bible, read a verse, and walked away from the pulpit and stood like uh, I'm talking to you right now. And I uh, began to say some things and elaborate on some things that, that I knew it wasn't new to me. Uh, but uh, you know, sometimes you have that proverbial light come on in you see things differently. And uh, when he began to expound and, and deliver his soul, uh, I was captivated. And I'll be very honest with you, there's very few preachers that has that impact on me yesterday. I listened to him, but he reeled me in. I began to listen to him. I have spoken to you guys this year that I think one of the most detrimental things that can happen in the life of a child of God is when you feel like you're entitled. Meaning that I've served God for so many years and now God owes me something. I think a spirit of entitlement is, is a very negative thing that can happen. There's another step that he took that yesterday that really challenged my thinking and I really enjoy times where God will stretch me to something new something deeper something broader when the disciples came to Jesus and if I don't get to my Bible study tonight that would be okay but I, I want to develop a series here in the next few weeks if I can and teach what I'm going to give you a just a brief presentation of. 
when the disciples came to Jesus and said, teach us to pray, what was the first two words out of Jesus' mouth when he gave them the Lord's Prayer? What was it? Our Father. Our Father. Our Father. Our God. Well, I have related to you guys on many, many, many occasions feel like I grew up in a good home because mom and dad were solid. We were what I consider to be poor. Uh, we didn't have money, but we had a good home. My dad died when I was 16, and I was the youngest of seven. And this isn't a whine session. I'm just going to use it as a, a parallel here in a minute. But I don't feel like I have really had a, a good relationship with my dad. I didn't have a bad one. I didn't have one. My dad oftentimes was not the most approachable person. Uh, he liked to be left alone. He liked his face. And uh, growing up as a child, I felt oftentimes like uh, children, including me, were kind of an annoyance sometimes. And uh, he was tired. He worked hard. And he died at a young age. But I've always been happy about the fact and fulfilled with the fact that I grew up in a good home, had good, solid mom and dad. <coughs> but it hit me really hard yesterday, really, really hard. had a hard time sleeping last night. That when Jesus said, our Father which art in heaven, that father relationship doesn't exist anymore. I didn't have a real close, intimate relationship with my dad. I'm not going to ask you to do it. I, I prefer you not do it. But it would be interesting, if you're really honest here tonight, to see a show of hands as to how many of you feel like you just had a real solid, just healthy, intimate relationship with your dad. Most of you folks I know, and I would say that probably most of you couldn't raise your hand because things happen. And it doesn't mean your dad nor mine's a bad person. But oftentimes, families, homes, marriages, parenting is overshadowed by a great deal of difficulty. And the obligation that parents have towards their children when they grow up all the way through adult years and leave home is oftentimes distracted by other things. And so the kids can wait. I see a repeat of that in our society on a far larger scale than what I grew up with. As a matter of fact, we now know that couples divorce and they share their kids. One gets them one weekend and one gets them the other weekend. And that goes on. I believe that the devil has, and we all know this, has systematically destroyed the home to take away that father relationship. And this is one thing that Brother Morgan said yesterday that just really, it just impacted me, and I, I can't get past the impact of that. Is there someone in this church recently fasted for a long period of time and prayed real hard over a certain number of days that God would do something in their life, in the life of their family. 
and he said, how many of you growing up as a child gave up food for any length of time before you went and asked your earthly daddy, is there something I can eat? How many of you gave it up? I never did. Every time my mother cooked a, cooked a meal, I, I, I found my place at the table. As a matter of fact, growing up as a child until I was 16 and had my dad in the house, I never thought about when Christmas time was coming around and I wanted that new bicycle. It never crossed my mind one time to give up eating for three days and then go ask my daddy, would he get me that bicycle? It never crossed my mind. I always assumed that my mom and dad would take care of me. I never questioned it. Sister Vernell is here tonight. She knows my family very, very well. From fifties. I never had to worry about where I was going to sleep and if I was going to get the next meal. I never worried about that. I never had to ask my daddy when I approached the dinner table, Dad, do you mind if I sit down and eat? It was just a given. Whatever my dad taught us, now not every house is like this, but my dad taught us whatever is in this house, you can have it. There's food in the pantry. You can have it. Don't ask daddy. Well, then the question came up to Brother Morgan and Pamela. He asked it and then he answered it. I was thinking it when he said it. Remember when a man came to Jesus to cast, or came to his disciples rather, to cast the devil out of his son? And he said, Jesus walked up eventually and he said, I, I asked your disciples to do this and they couldn't, so Jesus took care of it. And then when the man went away, Jesus had a session with his disciples and said, this time goeth not out but by prayer and fasting. So we have gleaned for that from that for years. That if you want something from God, you have to pray and fast, pray and fast, pray and fast, beg and plead, beg and plead, beg and plead. Because that's what Jesus said. But he said, and this is impactful, and I can't get away from the impact of it. He said, that what goeth out by prayer and fasting is not the devil. Our prayer and fasting don't get the devil out of nobody. Jesus gets the devil out of us. Prayer and fasting gets the carnality out of us. That's what he meant. That's the first time there was in, in my whole ministerial experience that that continuity of all of that big picture came together. So I want to ask you folks to help me pray because this is going to be real hard on a lot of you folks because of our lack of relationship with our Lord God. But what I'm planning to do, Lord willing, is I want to teach several Bible studies, and we'll use it for family as well, but on what a real father is. I've tried to be one, and I can tell you this. I've never, never, ever let my kids beg me for anything, ever. 
matter of fact, there's a lot of things that I wanted my kids to have that they never had. So I assumed, as a father, that they didn't want it. I want to to start working with grace real hard. And the reason I guess this has impacted me so profoundly, I'm not saying we don't need to pray and we don't need to fast. I didn't say that. But I think we need to readjust our thinking. That we come to God as beggars, Brother Holland said it, and we should come to God as believers. But Brother Morgan took it a step further and said, we should come to God as our Father. So if you had or have a real, true relationship with your brother, start thinking about God in the same fashion. When was the last time you walked in, did you ever walk into your dad's bedroom when he was sleeping and fall across his bed and just start wailing and moaning that you could have that today. Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread. Now here's the clincher. The more I'm getting into this, the more I like it. I'm feeling more comfortable. This is just a little rehearsal for me, okay? Let me tell you about miracles what it has to do with Jesus as our father. This just, Sister Burnell just blew me away. And I can't get past it. So y'all might hear this for a while, but I'm getting past it. When the Syrophoenician woman came to Jesus and said, my daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. The disciples said, send her away for she cries, cries after us. And the woman said, have mercy on me. What did Jesus say? It is not meet, it's not appropriate to take the children's what? Bread. Bread. Everybody say bread. To us, a miracle is worth its weight in gold. To, to us humans, the miraculous is just mind-boggling. A spiritual Mercedes-Benz, it's a, a spiritual mansion, it's a spiritual bank account of millions of dollars. What happened to me yesterday or last night, that means everything to me. But to God, our Father, it's a piece of bread. Historically, and even to this day, one of the cheapest commodities on the market to buy is a loaf of bread. A piece of bread, a miracle to God, is nothing more than a piece of bread. It's nothing to Him. It's nothing out of His pocket. He gives you the desires of your heart. If we could only see it. I remember, and I'm going to conclude with this, and I'll go through a little Bible study real quick and quit preaching for a little bit. I hope y'all don't mind this. I just really enjoy times where I can just kind of talk to you. <clears throat> but I remember I was eight or nine years old, I guess it was. And um, we had asked 
my brother is David and not after me by distance. But you understand in the Murphy household back then, you only got one thing. Kids nowadays get bored with toys. They get so much, they don't know what to play with. You only got one thing back in those days. And I found out later, my mother let the cat outside, that they caught a sale at Sears and Roebuck went and bought my brother and I identical matching purple spider bicycles 20 inch tires butterfly handlebar and a banana seat and those of you that ain't from that era you don't know what I'm talking about but it was a big deal buddy they couldn't wait to give us those bicycles as a matter of fact we got them on Christmas Eve and they brought them in the house and my daddy, you have to know my daddy, he let my brother and I ride them bicycles around. We made black marks on the floor. That's all right, y'all. We just rode in a circle. It was a circus act because that house was so small you had to go outside and change your mind. And, uh, but I found out they got those bicycles at Sears for $32.99 each, $32.99. To me, that bicycle changed my life. I rode that bicycle for probably three or four years. It got stolen one time. And we went downtown to the police department and recovered it. I knew my bicycle. Out of all the bicycles that there, we, we painted them things all kind of different colors. We'd take them apart, paint it, put them back together. We'd reload the rims, no rust. I've been a fanatic for years. You just think this OCD-ness on me is new. It started as a child. Uh, we would tear them bicycles down. Any of you men ever cut that little thin piece of leather off of a belt and put slits on the end of it and wrap it around the axle of your bicycle rim so you could ride and it keeps it shiny? There's somebody that did it. You ain't going to raise your hand, chicken. But uh, one that did it, we took care of our bicycles. We never threw them down on the ground to get off and put that good skin down. To my daddy, oh, you had not big a deal. It really didn't cost that much money. But to me, it was everything. And I want to say all of you folks here tonight that was blessed and have been blessed with a miracle in the past month or two, to God, it ain't that big of a deal. But he is so happy to give it to you. it all together at what we could ever bring God if we would come not as a beggar but as a believer as a son read all through the New Testament at how God refers to us as sons why? ask you the next time you pray don't pray to this old antique ancient God that's way off in the blue yonder somewhere but just imagine the most perfect daddy you could have had in your life waiting for you and imagine yourself walking into his living room and saying daddy there's some things I need to know I sure appreciate you 
matter of fact, if we could really get our head around it, we would really understand the scripture where Jesus said, your father knows what you have need of even before you ask him. Why? Because he is our father and that is his heart. Everybody said amen. Clap your hands. want to speak to you tonight. Brother Holland meddled in my business Sunday morning, and I told him about that after church, and he just pretty much did it. That's most I got out of him, but uh, where on one hand, I appreciate men of God talking to our folks and trying to help the pastor's cause. I've never, ever wanted to put that burden on any guest speaker to do that. That's my job, and I don't want them to ever feel a sense of duty to have to do that. I hope enough of you know my nature that uh, had he asked me if he could do that, I'd have said I'd do it. I like for our guest speakers to have the freedom to come and speak and preach and, and not feel the weight of uh, those kind of burdensome things that he said Sunday morning before he preached. Be that as it may, he had no clue that I had been talking along those lines uh, for the past several Wednesday nights that I've been in the pulpit. And uh, I would like to pick that up tonight. As a matter of fact, the the next presentation that I had planned to make, which is what I want to do tonight for just a few minutes, I'll not hold you long has to do with what he talked about Sunday morning. So I hope and pray tonight that it will have impact on you um, as it should. I want to read from 1 Samuel 24, verses 6 and 7. This is a story of David and Saul. And he said, he said unto his men, this is David speaking, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch forth mine hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David stayed his servants with these words and suffered them not to rise against Saul. But Saul rose up out of the cave and went on his way. All of you know this story. When David had an opportunity to kill Saul in a cave, Joab said, I'll do it for you. But David said, no, I cannot touch and uh, stretch forth mine hand against the anointed of the Lord. Let me discuss with you for a few minutes tonight, and again, I I promise you not to keep you long tonight. Let me discuss with you something that is so prevalent in our church world today that all of us here tonight are familiar with, and that is how spiritual vagabonds are born. How spiritual vagabonds are born. This is what God told Cain he would be, a vagabond. He would not have a place to call home. In 1 Samuel chapter 24, we see how David was mistreated by the very man that he had hoped would be his father's image. David loved Saul. David kept trying to understand where he 
David had gone wrong. What have I done to this man that he hates me to the degree that he does? What had he done to Saul to turn Saul's heart against him? And then what in the world could David do to win Saul back? David more than proved his loyalty by sparing Saul's life, even though Saul was at that time very aggressively pursuing the life of David. He cried out to Saul with his head bowed to the ground, saying, See that there is neither evil or rebellion in my hand. I have not sinned against you. Once David knew he had shown his loyalty to his leader, his mind was eased somewhat. Later, he learned more devastating news that after his repenting and after his pouring his heart out to Saul and what have you, Saul was still continuing his effort to destroy him. But with all of that, David refused to raise a hand against the one who sought to take his life, though God had put the army to sleep and had given him a companion who pleaded for permission to kill Saul. David somehow sensed that this sleeping army served another per- a purpose. God did not make it convenient for David to kill Saul that night. What God did by not allowing Saul's army to wake up in the cave when David was standing at the side of Saul with a knife in his hand about to cut off a piece of his garment, what God was doing was testing David to see what David would do when he had justification for vengeance and when he had opportunity to get even. He wanted to see what David would do. God wanted to see, bottom line, whether David would kill Saul to establish his kingdom after the order of Saul, or if he would put that whole situation in God's hands and allow God to establish David's throne in righteousness forever. That was the thing. David would have messed up real bad had he slew Saul that night in that cave. Paul wrote in Romans 12, 19, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Don't give place to wrath, do not avenge yourselves. If I had time tonight, I could go through a long story about a man I talked to several months ago that literally believes it is his job to get even for anything that happens to his family. He was raised that way. And uh, someone was, was threatening the future and the career of his son, and he told me straight up with tears streaming down his face. He said, if, if that man hurts my son, hurts his career, I will kill him. I will shoot him dead. You will read about me in the newspaper. You will see me on the evening news because it is my job to serve vengeance. He and I had about a three-hour verbal wrestling match over that, and I could not persuade him otherwise. It is righteous for God to avenge his servants. It is unrighteous 
for God's servants to avenge themselves. Saul was not a man who avenged himself. He chased David, a man of honor. David was a man of honor. And he chased him for some 14 years, and he murdered priests, and he murdered the priests' families in an effort to get even and to get vengeance on David. So as David stood over the sleeping Saul, he faced an important test. It would reveal whether David still had the noble heart of a shepherd or the insecurity of another Saul. Would he remain a man after God's heart? Initially, it is so much easier when we take matters into our own hands rather than waiting on a righteous God. And God will test his servants with obedience even when it appears that you've been given opportunity. He deliberately, God will test us by placing us in situations where the standards of religion and society would appear to justify our actions. He may even allow others, especially those close to us, to encourage us to protect ourselves. We may even think that we would be noble and protect others by avenging ourselves, but this is not God's way. It's the way of the world's wisdom. It's earthly, it's fleshly, but it's not God's way. So how can God use corrupt leaders? How can God use corrupt leaders? If I don't finish this tonight, I'll finish it next week. Many people ask, why does God put people under leaders who make serious mistakes and even some that are wicked. I wrote about it in my book when I wrote the chapter on Samuel. If I had been Hannah, his mother, that church that was pastored by Eli and his two sons would have been the last place on this planet that I'd have brought my young son to and said, here, y'all take him and raise him up the way he should go. Buddy, that was one wicked church. <laughs> the Bible said there was no open vision. The word of God hadn't been preached there in years. Eli was old and cantankerous. and His two sons were literally committing fornication in the church lobby. And here comes Hannah with a or just winged Samuel and said, here, I want to place him in y'all's hands to raise him spiritually. Why does God do that? Why does God make that sometimes permissible? I'll have you know that it was God. It was God. Everybody say God. It was God, not the devil, that put Samuel under the authority of a corrupt priest named Eli. And the hands of his two wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas. These men were very wicked. They took offerings by force. They manipulated people and so on. So can you imagine if you were serving a minister, can you imagine serving a minister who lived this kind of life? Everybody here tonight knows when a preacher falls morally, or even doctrinally, he is crucified, man. 
And most people will stand around and say, well, I told you, I knew he was no good. Why would God move on the heart of Hannah to say, take your son Samuel and let him be raised up in that environment? She didn't just bring him on Sunday. She brought him there and left him. She came once a year to see him. She left him in the hands of a minister who was so insensitive to the things of God that he couldn't recognize a woman in prayer and accused her of being drunk. So fleshly and carnal that he was grossly overweight, the Bible said. So compromising, he did nothing about his sons, whom he had appointed as church leaders who were being immoral in the church. Most Christian people today would be really offended by such things. And how long would you put up with it before you decided to go find another church? Matter of fact, most of us would find another church over a whole lot less. Then go telling others as they went of the wicked lifestyle of their former pastor. In the midst of such corruption, I love the report of what Samuel did. The Bible said in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1, Now the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before or in front of Eli. I wrote about it in my book, and it's interesting. But um, you can serve God if you really want to. It don't matter what the environment is, if you want to. Now, we have to be, as my daughter-in-law Cassie says, tat-tat. We need a lot of TLC to serve God. If you just really want to, you serve God. But the corruption of that time eventually took its toll. The word of God was rare in those days. One translation said there was no widespread revelation. God seemed distant. To the entire Hebrew community, the lamp of God was about to go out in the temple. Yet Samuel, yet did Samuel go look for another place to worship? Did Hannah yank him out and put him in the church across town? Did even Samuel, as he grew up, did he go to the elders to expose the wickedness of Eli and his sons? Did he form a committee to put Eli and his sons out of the pasture? Nope. He just ministered before the Lord. God had placed Samuel there. And Samuel understood that God never gave him the responsibility for the behavior of Eli or his sons. This doesn't justify Eli and his sons. It doesn't say that they were right. It just says that Eli, or rather Samuel had the right attitude about it. He was put under them not to judge but to serve he knew Eli was God's servant not his he knew that God was quite capable of dealing with his own children do not correct their fathers I did one time when my dog Beanie bit my mother on the arm I was about 13 years old and I stood eye to eye toe to toe with my daddy and prayed with all of my heart 
that my mother would intervene. She did. God intervened. Give me that dog, I'm going to kill him. And I jumped up and I said, no, you're not. She was aggravating him and she knew he would bite her. And my mama said, honey, he's right, he's right, leave him for a fish. And my daddy bites him. But typically, children do not correct their fathers. But it's the duty of the fathers to train and correct the children. We're to deal with and confront those whom God has given us to train. This is our responsibility. This is my responsibility as pastor. Those on our own level, we're to encourage and to exhort as brothers. But in this Bible study, we're dealing with our response to those who have authority over us. Samuel knew his role. He knew his place. I'm not here to correct Eli. I'm not here to straighten him out. That's God's job. I'm not here to fix it. I've known of situations where different groups of people would bind together and pray weekly that God would remove their pastor from the pulpit. That don't work. Children don't correct their fathers. Samuel served God's appointed minister the best he could without the pressure to judge him or correct him. The only time Samuel spoke a word of correction was when Eli came to Samuel and asked him what prophecy God had given to him the night before. When God spoke to Samuel, 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 Samuel. It's interesting to me that Samuel mistaken the voice of God for Eli's voice. Well, let me go to my pastor. That has to be my pastor calling me. To Samuel, it was the same. It was one and the same. Even though his pastor and priest was a very corrupt man, he still thought it was the voice of God coming out of his mouth. So when Eli wanted to know what God said, Samuel guided my words a little spunky with Eli and didn't want to tell him because God told him that Eli's time is done and I'm going to replace him, and that's all that's going to be over with. And uh, Samuel didn't want to tell Eli that, but, but he did. He got a little curt with him, but he, he went on to tell him. If more people would get a hold of this concept, our churches would be a whole lot different. It sure would. So I want to say tonight, in the just in the next couple of minutes, and then I'll conclude, and I will pick this up next Wednesday night since that's not Thanksgiving week. Churches are not Piccadillys. They're not cafeterias. Today, men and women leave churches so readily if they see something wrong in the leadership. Perhaps it is the way the pastor received the offering. It's the way the money's spent. They don't like what the pastor, pastor preaches, so they leave. He's either not approachable or he's too familiar. There's no end. Literally, there was a family that left our church when it was in Baker years and years ago because Sister Murphy didn't shake this man's hand when he left. The list is endless over why people leave churches and people don't understand that God sometimes places you under certain leadership for a purpose, and that's what he did with Samuel. It was wicked. It was horrible, but Samuel developed and he grew into what God wanted him to become because it was the will of God for him to become. So rather than face difficulties and maintain hope, people will just go to where there appears to be no conflict. I'm just going to go where there's no conflict. But let's face it. Jesus is the only perfect pastor. He's the only perfect pastor. So 
Why do we run from difficulties in America instead of facing them and working through them? When we, when we don't hit these conflicts head on, we usually leave offended. So you take your offense that happened at XYZ Church to ABC Church. So you, you didn't handle the problem. You're offended. You go to where you feel like the environment's better, but you haven't handled the problem. It's like going to a hospital and have surgery and not like the way you're treated. Just get up in your hospital gown and go to the hospital across town. Well, you're in a different environment, and you may be getting a little, little bit of care, but you still brought that incision and that surgery and all the byproduct with you. Sometimes we say our, our ministry is just not received I, I just I can't grow and you know what have you then we go from church to church looking for a place with flawless leadership but it's important that you leave that you repair the damage in your spirit that you get things right between you and God in your spirit before you leave and most don't choose to leave the church Many think churches are like cafeterias. They can pick and choose what they like. They feel the freedom to stay as long as there's no problem. But this does not agree at all with what the Bible teaches. You're not the one who chooses where you go to church. God should choose. Because God has a purpose in every one of our lives. And I want to say tonight, and it's heartbreaking. I don't care how big your church gets, and it doesn't matter. And We don't have a big church here, but. It hurts every time a family leaves. Sister Murphy and I are just devastated every time a family leaves, no matter what the reason is. We've had uh, two or three families that's moved away to other cities and states, and it's just devastating. But what is more devastating than you can imagine is when I know as pastors God has put people here for a purpose, but they don't want to go through that process. They don't want to go through that process of training of literally being taught how to rethink some things and to see a different to see things from a different perspective and point of view in their life. The Bible does not say that God has set the members and each one of them in the body just as they please, but rather it says in 1 Corinthians 12:18, now but now hath God set the members every one of them in the body as it has pleased. God has put you in the body of Christ where it pleases so sometimes you have to endure hardship and you have to endure offense but God places these things sometimes in our lives to cause us to grow so remember if you're in the place where God wants you the devil will try to offend you to get you out because he don't want you to grow where you can he don't want you to be where God wants you to be if he can get you out then he's been successful if you will not budge, if you resist the devil, even in the midst of great conflict, you spoil his tools. I'm going to pick this up next Wednesday night and talk to you about a, a critical deception. But I want to <clears throat> make an effort tonight to illustrate something here. tell you what God does in, in our lives oftentimes. And nobody likes it. I don't. I don't like it. 
there's a process we all go through. Everybody has to go through a process. Y'all understand the New Testament concept and principle of crucifying the flesh that's a question that do y'all understand the principle of crucifying the flesh where it's not my will but thine be done kind of thing so if you want to crucify your flesh and I'm going to ask you to, to demonstrate this first of all is I want you to pretend that you're nailing yourself to a cross and you got a hammer and a nail, so start at your feet. Nail them real good. Y'all see that? Nail real good. All right, nail your hand. All right, now nail that one. You can't. <laughs> Why can't he nail that hand? Because he's all nailed up. So who nails this one? The person that's in there. It takes someone else to finish this crucifying the flesh process. So when you're hurt and you've been offended and you're grieving over it, it's God's way of putting a nail in your hand. And it completes the process. Do you all see this? Does that make sense? I saw that demonstrated yesterday and it almost put me on my face I just could not get past it that God has used other preachers that I love and adore to finish nailing me to the cross God has used church members people that I love and adore to nail me to the cross in some of your cases it's been parents a spouse that's just hurt you so bad you can't stand it I understand here tonight and I'm not sleeping I was born at night but it wasn't last night nobody wants to go to hell brother Mike forgiveness is easier than permission I hope you'll do it for me one more time I hurt this man badly a month or so ago I hurt him You know what I know? I know it's better than what I thought it was. I was the instrument that stuck that hammer in my victim's hand and placed it there. I throw him that nail away from him because he crucified his flesh and would not let that get him down, would not let that bite at him down with him and he was going to win I'm going to have to go through enough church now and ask you to forgive me again because I don't like this stuff but I want to use that and I hope you understand as an illustration that in one hand every person in this building carries a nail in the other hand you carry a hammer and whether you realize it or not and whether you want to or not it's a divine process that sometimes you will nail me to a cross.
that one hand, but I can't get to it because it's over here. I can't get to it. So you can make me cry. And sometimes I get to it. Maybe that's why. There's tears. There's people all over this room today. I know I drink your tears thing I could do is come tag you and Sister Michelle and say, here, let me use the other end of the hammer and let me pull that nail out. Let me, let me take you down. Jesus had at his disposal 10,000 angels to take him down and make life with him impossible. I did think of someone in this church, and I'm, I'm closing with is what happens when pastors don't preach for four Sundays in a row. I'm sorry, but I have about eight things that I want to teach tonight that I'm struggling to add. <clears throat> but there's somebody in this church that was hurt deep, deep, deep by another preacher. But he endured the process, the shame, the embarrassment, the gossip, the rumors, Hurt bad. Jesus was literally beaten to death. But what happened to those eight lepers? What happened? Three days later, he came out with those scars to show his disciples that had come in, to prove his identity. And all of that was healed in three days. What we have to understand is when you go through this process of offense, even when it's at the hands of a preacher, if you stick with the process, you'll come out redeemed, bigger, better, more powerful, more committed, more determined, stay where you're going. But Brother Kenny would tell them they shoveled the dirt on, it just gives you more to grow from. Grow wherever. I have to stop. I promised y'all wouldn't hold me long. That was five minutes over. That's my fault. So I'm fixing to end. I love our church. We have a wonderful church. Uh, I've been told by people that, man, if something ever happens to you, call me. I'd love to come pastor your church. I'm like, well, I guess you would, moron. Go find it like, go find you one like I found this one and build you one. That's what you do. But uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful church. You people are just amazing. And more often than not, when you've gone through offense and hurt here at Grace, you stay. And God makes you better and better. That's what we try to do. Thanks a lot. Love you people. Glad you're here tonight. God bless you. Let's just pray and thank the Lord for being with us tonight for his close fellowship. Jesus, we love you. And we're thankful tonight for your fellowship, the working of your hand, the moving of your spirit in our lives.